as has been um, spoken about, we're starting a new series today. Um, I've been trying to come up with a, a thing for it. I don't know if we've settled on a title yet, have we, Tim? But I, I'm running with this one kind of at the moment. Uh, how, how Genesis prepares us for Jesus, prepares us for our need of Jesus, this sort of thing. So we are, we're going to be ducking out of Luke for some time, or to spend some time in the Old Testament, actually. Because we spend a lot of time in the New Testament, but it doesn't make any sense. It really makes no sense at all unless you've come to terms with the Old Testament and what comes before it. And what comes before it uh, in the Old Testament is this incomplete, or probably better put, an unfinished promise and story of how God is going to restore his creation and all of its relationships and all that sort of stuff back to their good design by bringing about judgment and justice to bear on the disorder and the relational corruption that sin has caused uh, through a promised figure, a sin destroyer, a relationship restorer, a, a creation redeemer. And as the Old Testament goes along, this figure develops throughout the Old Testament. And the Old Testament records uh, God's loving faithfulness, faithfulness to this promise. And this figure that begins at the start of the Old Testament and travels through collects a bunch of names and descriptions. And here's just a couple like offspring or uh, son of man, suffering servant, son of David, Emmanuel. And then you know, Isaiah, there's a whole list, you know, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And then this figure is described as a shepherd and this Messiah who would be the saviour of God's people and the nations of the world. And the narrative develops. So what we're going to do over the next eight to nine weeks is we're going to duck back to Genesis the book of origins where the story and the promise begins and see how it is that Genesis does prepare us as one of the books of the Bible for Jesus who is this promised figure, who is this uh, promised Messiah. And in a way Genesis also, it's one of those books that describes reality, why things are the way they are, why we're here and all this sort of stuff. So that's going to be good. Now I know you're all sitting there going, brother you have been in Luke for three years. And you are halfway through it. How are you going to do Genesis in eight to nine weeks? Well, I've enlisted the help of Tim uh, Beeching and Lyson Wong. So, you know, getting in some good, capable people there to help us get through it. And then we're into Christmas and that's going to be good. But as our reading suggested, we're going to, uh, we're going to be dropping into Luke today. Our last little stop in Luke uh, before we get into Genesis, because in Luke 24, what we see is Jesus affirming, uh, affirms it how applying the whole story of the Old Testament uh, to, to Jesus and understanding it in the light of Jesus is what brings the gospel to life, is what warms our hearts with affection uh, for God as we see that he is a God who is capable of delivering his promises. Uh, so this is actually Luke now preparing us for Genesis which will you know, prepare us for Luke. This is literally Jesus affirming the whole Old Testament as a, a unified story that exposes like how jacked up that we are, how messed up that we are and our need for Jesus, our need for him and how even the best of us, even the heroes of the Old Testament fall short and we need uh, something greater. So we're going to get into that, but let's pray and then we'll get at it. We'll get to work. 
I mean, God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you that you bring us together like this. Uh, we've come from all over the, uh, the map of the city of, of, of Frankston and, and that. And here we are together this morning just to uh, give voice to our love of you, our relationship with you, to look across the room and see others doing that and know that we are amongst brothers and sisters who have been united in Christ, that we share this life together, that we can uh, encourage each other. And now as we turn to your word, we pray that that would be encouraging us, that that would be, as Jesus seemed to suggest here, that it would warm our hearts with affection for you, that it would bring life and truth into us. And we pray that this morning. Okay. In his commentary, uh, Phil Riken has got a great commentary on Luke. Uh, he begins it by saying, by asking the question, if you could go back in time, if you could go back in any point in time to witness uh, a biblical event in history, well, what, what would you choose? Where would you go back? Would you go back to, say, right back to the start, like we're going to go, back to creation, back to Genesis, back to when God created the world, when he, when he took chaos and he, and, he, and he formed order and brought order to it. Would you go back just to see the first streak of light shooting out across the cosmos? Oh, that'd be good. That'd clean up a few questions, wouldn't it? Answer a few questions for us. Or maybe you'd take in the flood just to see whether or not it was like a universal flood or a local flood. And what kind of animals went on the ark as, as God provided provision against judgment. Maybe work out whether that really was the end of the dinosaurs or, or whatever other questions you got around that. Maybe you go back to the Passover, the Exodus, Moses. Uh, as God rescues and leads his people uh, in relational dependency and trust and safety in him. And, and then get to see the parting of the Red Sea and, and all that's going on in there. Or maybe the Battle of Jericho, Joshua. Perhaps you'd go and watch David defeat Goliath just to find out how tall Goliath really was. Maybe you'd drop in on the birth of Jesus and the nativity scene. I mean, that would be pretty cool to watch all of that unfold. Maybe taking some of the miracles of Jesus, the healing of the lame, the healing of the blind, healing of the oppressed, feeding of 5,000 people, walking on water. I mean, that would be handy, wouldn't it, to see that sort of stuff? with your own eyes, divine agency, and divine authority in a person, I think that would help. I think that would help out our faith, yeah? It turns out that both Phil Riken, I couldn't believe it, well, I was like, have I read this before? Has this dude tapped into my brain? I don't know. But we would both like to go back, if we could go back in time, if I could go back in time, I would, I would love to go back to this moment on the road to Emmaus. Because in this seven-mile journey, Jesus explains to these two disciples uh, how all of these stories all point to, all reveal who Jesus is and our need of him. Here on the road to Emmaus, we have the living and eternal word made flesh now explaining the written word. That's just crazy to me. And I would have given anything to have listened in. You know, tell me again, tell me again why killing David, why David killing Goliath isn't a story about me overcoming, you know, my personal giants. Are you telling me that, that I'm not David and Goliath's not my problems in the world? That this is not a story about me finding inner courage? No, Cleopas, 
David is jacked up and messed up as you, but it presents a type of salvation. A rescue from overwhelming evil, but it's incomplete. So it points further down the road to this Jesus of Nazareth, whose resurrection, who this story that you just can't get your head around says that he has defeated even death, sin and death. You're not the hero of the story, Jesus is. You don't need to become the hero of the story. You don't need to become David. You need to, know, you need to meet Jesus. David's a failed hero who exposes our need for a perfect one. Luke is the only uh, gospel writer to include this, this event, this Emmaus Road event. And in doing so, Luke gives us another, a further eyewitness uh, account to the risen Lord Jesus. Even if it takes right till the very end of this journey for these two uh, people to perceive who Jesus is. It's not till the end that we get there. And Luke says it in verses 30 to 31 that it wasn't until they were sitting around a table in fellowship and, and Jesus breaks some bread and then they see who he is, you know. Would have been a great TikTok moment. Let's film this. Let's get it. Let's watch. No one's on TikTok. It's one of these most significant details, though, to me that... That it's not until right at the end of the story that they get to see Jesus and perceive who he is. Their hearts are already burning about Jesus of Nazareth before they get to see him. It's through the hearing of how this Jesus of Nazareth is the, is the figure promised in Genesis, promised in Exodus, promised in the prophets and the Psalms, portrayed in, in, in an ark, portrayed in a Passover, portrayed in a king like David, and attested to through all the miracles and, and, and teachings that Jesus did. It's not the physical sight of Jesus that lit the faith of the fire of faith in them. It was the preaching of the gospel of, of Jesus, by Jesus, granted not a bad preacher. It was, him, it was him bringing the word of God to life. And then once that fire was set, once, once they were like, yeah, 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 we're hearing it, this makes sense. Then, then, and only then, does Jesus reveal himself. Ever wondered why he's veiled in this story? So we don't actually need to go back in time to see the evidence, we can be just like these two disciples and hear the good news through the written word. And that is enough. That is enough to set our hearts on fire. This is enough for us to trust God and his promises. And it's enough for us to be able to see Jesus as our salvation. Here is Jesus telling the disciples that the Bible is one unified story that, that leads to him. And that if this story warms your heart with affection, warms your heart with affection for God and, and, and his promises, you will see Jesus as the completion of these promises to deal with sin, to deal with everything that's jacked up in your life and bring us back into relationship with God. Have I gone to the right slide, Luke? I think so. Well, Luke lets us know that we are still dealing with Resurrection Sunday. With the phrase he starts at there, that very day. That very day that the body of Jesus couldn't be found. That very day that the women went to the tomb to care for Jesus' body and the tomb's empty and an angel talks to them and they come back and they report all these, these things to the disciples. 
that very day, that very day that Peter and John had run to the empty tomb and just seen this mysterious evidence of the tomb, it just doesn't make too much sense. This very confusing, this very disorientating day, a day that made a bad situation even worse. It's one of the things that makes this story plausible, that these things actually happened. And, and now uh, two of this crew, two of the disciples who were there, are now heading back to Jerusalem towards Emmaus. And the events of the morning, the past days, are being discussed between the two of them. Analyzed, disputed, uh, considered. When Luke says that they were discussing these things together, the word here, picture an animated conversation, gesticulations, um, interaction around what they've heard, the forensic nature of things, trying to make sense of what they heard. You, if you were walking on, you would have seen two people like arms and legs and all kinds of things going on. And while we know one of these travel, travelers is Cleopas from verse 17, the identity of the other is a mystery. We don't know. It's just another disciple. It's not necessary to know. But if this, is, if this Cleopas that's walking down the Emmaus Road is the same Cleopas, it's spelled differently, but same names from John 19.25, then it's possible that this unnamed disciple is actually his wife, Mary, who is at the tomb. A few commentators go, yeah, we think, we think it could be, yeah, we think it's her. A woman who's actually spoken to the angels, who told them that Jesus isn't here anymore, he's risen. So you can imagine this conversation. Mary, people don't resurrect in human history. Sure, we know there's going to be a resurrection of the dead at the end of time, but people don't come back to life in a resurrected way in human history. We don't have any categories for this. This crazy talk. Hey, Cleopas, you fool. I know what I saw. I know what the angel said. Ah, oh, and then conversation. Hey, okay, let's go over it again. What did Jesus say when he was with us? Let's talk about these things. Let's go over these things. We don't know, but I kind of like this scenario of a husband and wife having a punch on about whether Jesus is alive or, or dead. But here's what we do know about these two. They are so consumed by the, by the, by the conversation and they are so consumed by the guilt, grief and they're invested in this dialogue that they pay little attention to the fact that Jesus has actually, uh, the, the one that they are talking about, the one that they're discussing, it's actually kind of walked up beside them. It's now eavesdropping in on the conversation that they're having. While Luke identifies that it's Jesus, and he does it in retrospect because he's heard the story and he wants us to know that this is who he is. This is who's now joined the conversation. In live time, his identity is veiled from these travelers. Up to this point in Luke's gospel, no one has seen Jesus. It's all been word of mouth. It's all that he is risen, or granted it's come from some angels, but he is risen and alive. Now his first appearance is a veiled one through which he will hear the unvarnished thoughts of these two travelers. A veiled Lord Jesus listening into the broken hopes of this pair. I feel right and say it's kind of falling into stride, just coming along and, and, and starting beginning to walk with pace with these two disciples. Jesus now feigns ignorance and asks the question, what's this conversation you two are holding while you walk, while you travel? So stunned. They're just stunned. They're so stunned that they stop. Yeah, when someone says something so profoundly stupid, you stop and go, what? This is the moment. 
They just stopped dead in their tracks. They turn from their debate to each other to the stranger in disbelief at his question, and their disbelief is only matched by the absolute sadness of their hearts. Cleopas inquires, are you the only person, have you been in Jerusalem for five minutes, brother? And that you, you, you haven't heard what everybody else is talking about? Haven't you heard the events of the past days? It seems like, it seems that this stranger is completely out of touch with reality and is the only person in the whole city of Jerusalem who hasn't managed to hear, hear the news about the, the death of, of Jesus and some of the rumours now starting to circulate around the, the raising of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I, every now and again, Jesus does some stuff and I think, yeah, it's a good one. Spend a bit of time thinking about what Jesus says next. And there's a part of me that likes to think that's very mischievous. But knowing Jesus and knowing his motives, the dialogue and the relational interaction that he's about to enter into is around compassion, is around correction and restoring of faith. And so he asks, do tell what things? So they seek to bring him up to speed with the whole story. Their dead friend, Jesus of Nazareth, who they believed to be a revolutionary of messianic quality, a rabbi who would lead a political and spiritual revolution. However, he was handed over to be put to death by our own religious and civic leaders, killing off our hopes and our aspirations. And to add to that, to add to that disappointment of his death, there is reports of, of, of his disappearance, of, of language of resurrection this unexplainable condition of jesus empty tomb doesn't look like anybody kicked the door in and stole it just it's we can't work it out and then there's these words from angels that he's not here he's alive we can't make sense of it we don't have any categories for this kind of crazy it is a moment of great irony that these two travelers think they know everything about what has happened and that this veiled Jesus is the only person on planet Earth who doesn't know what's happened. Like, where have you been, mate? What rock have you been living under? When, in actual fact, Jesus is the only one who knows what has happened. And indeed, these two are clueless, which is pretty much what Jesus says, oh, foolish ones. And a literal translation of that is clueless ones. Like, whose words have you been listening to? What book have you been reading? Like, haven't you been reading all that the prophets have spoken about? It's a sad irony. They are explaining uh, to the ultimate source of joy in life why they are so sad and dismayed. And, and, and he's the reason for both. The irony that on the greatest day of human history, these disciples are at their absolute lowest, saddest. But it's also a moment of great compassion. As these disciples share the secret hurts of their souls, as they relate their disappointment uh, that Jesus was not what they thought he would be. And <laughs> they're talking to him. And here lies perhaps the greatest irony, that he's not less than what they thought, but he's much, much, much more. In fact, he is the sum total of everything they've ever hoped for. There just 
yet to join the dots. I was sitting and I was thinking about this. Have you ever wondered whether Jesus can bear the weight of the story of your soul when it comes to its disappointment, when it comes to feeling sad, when it comes to feeling like your whole whole world has fallen apart and the fact that that's connected to him, that he's let you down, that life hasn't turned out the way he promised it would be. Have you ever wondered whether Jesus can bear that? Here it is. This is him listening to exactly that, not losing his mind, not going nuts. And here's why I would love to be there. As I said, this is the living word. Gives a sermon about the written word, on how it's one big story that leads to him. And Jesus begins to interpret the whole of human history, beginning with Moses and the prophets. He, the hero of this epic, is himself telling the story. Here is Jesus essentially doing a read-through of his autobiography. The hero of the story is telling it, giving an insight into what it's all pointing to. How this Jesus of Nazareth, probably talking in third person, is a better Moses, is a better David. And here how his death and resurrection is a better sacrifice. You know, you savvy, you get it, you join in the dots, you too. And they have failed to understand and believe that a Messiah would suffer these things, these things of these last few days in order to enter into his glory. They couldn't conceive of a Messiah who dies for his people, let alone a God who would come and do that and serve humanity in this way. They have failed to join the dots between the Old Testament and what it had to say um, and all that Jesus had said to them while he was alive, that the glorious Son of Man from Daniel was also the suffering servant from Isaiah. So now Jesus gives them a personal read-through. I would love to have been there, taking notes for sermons. While this sermon begins with an an admonishment, it's not one through which Jesus intends to crush them, but one through which he intends to correct them and inform them and bring joy and delight to the souls that are so weighed down with desolation. This is Jesus who doesn't, you know, bruise the reed, snuff out the wick. It was necessary that the Christ, the promised one, should suffer these things and enter into glory. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, he interpreted to them all the scripture the things concerning himself. The strangest claim is an extraordinary one. That the whole Old Testament was looking forward to this Jesus of Nazareth, who was accredited through his ministry, but will also be accredited through this story of the resurrection. It takes about two hours, you know, if you're having a chat to walk seven miles. It must have been some sermon because when they get to Emmaus, they beg Jesus to stay and to talk on and to continue to tell them more. The fire has been lit and they are all in. They want to hear more. And as they sit around the table and they break bread, as as John shared with us this morning, uh, with Jesus, once that faith and that fire has been ignited, it's then that Jesus lets them in to see, hey, it's, it's, it's me. Lads, or lads and lasses. 
And now their eyes see what their hearts burned with. But it was Jesus opening scripture in such a way that saw that, that they were able to see him in every page as God's uh, loving and, and faithful response to our need, to the human condition. It wasn't merely their physical sight of him that set their hearts ablaze. But, but, but now uh, that has been confirmed, the, 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 uh, the correctness that, well, how did you phrase that, John? You can't remember. The certainty, yeah, the cer- thank you. Someone's listening. The certainty of their hearts is now confirmed through the certainty of what they see with their own eyes. Physical sight of him. Has, been, has, has, has corrected and confirmed what, what is already ablaze in their hearts. This book that you have in your hands or on your phones is life. It's what sets your heart ablaze. You need to read it. I imagine that the two-hour walk to Emmaus turned into a 40-minute run as Luke tells us that they returned back to the other disciples. story goes on. And with this incredible news that the rumours, the rumours that we've heard, it turns out my wife wasn't lying to me. The rumours that we've heard that Jesus is alive, he is risen, and we, we saw him. We saw him first in the word. We saw, we saw how this, this everything that we've heard and everything that Jesus said now is actually true. And now we've physically seen Jesus. And they're like, yeah, we got it too. We, 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 yeah, we've seen him. It's all, we're joining the dots. And then in this moment when they're all back together again, then Jesus turns up again. And after a little bit of a, if you read on through Luke there, a bit of forensic validation, you know, is this you really going to eat that fish? What are you doing here? We see that he, Jesus is a physical person, alive and well. Physical in, in an anatomical way, physical in a relational way. And then Jesus just gets at it again. And he says to this mob, this group of people, everything written about me, about him in the law of Moses, in the prophets and the Psalms, had to be fulfilled through the events of these past through few days. And he opened their minds up to understand the scriptures, which is what we try and do every Sunday. And over the next eight, eight to nine weeks, we are going to be getting at that in Genesis with the hope that as, as, this, as this part, as Genesis, as part of the uh, unified story of Jesus, as we get into that and as we read through it and, and, and the three of us start to preach to you that that too, the Genesis, uh, would begin to set our hearts on fire as we, as we see the origin of the promises and the faithfulness and the goodness of God to get us to Jesus, that it will deepen our faith and we will too say, yeah, he lives, he is risen and he lives in us and our hearts are ablaze. Let's pray. I mean, God, we thank you for it this morning again. We thank you for this incredible historic eyewitness account of, of the risen Lord Jesus and how here he comes to, to, to affirm to us that this whole entire narrative of disclosure between God and humanity and all of his promises that's been 
kept for us in the scripture is all real, is all valid, is all true, and leads to life. We pray, I guess, more and more that we would be a people of this book, that it would be shaping our hearts uh, as we see your love towards a persistently rebellious people. And we just commit these things to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.